You have no idea. Perm's going to be insane. It's going to be off the hook. It's going to be wild. Is that normal? Is it normal to like have a holiday like that? How could that be like spiritual? What's the meaning behind that? Perhaps the 12-step journey, coming to believe our higher power will restore us to sanity, is the key to understanding. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey, Consciously, welcome back. It's Menachem. Great for the beer. Really, really thankful, excited. Um, so it's Perm. Perm's coming. And um, I was thinking, should I do a Perm episode? Should I do the step two, what does that mean episode? And I decided, I didn't really decide, uh, the Abishter, God decided that they were actually really the same episode. Because I was thinking about it and then I, it just hit me. It's all the same. So we're going to talk about step two. And we're going to talk about Perm. Before we get there, I want to remind you to subscribe and give us a five-star review anywhere that you like your podcasts. And also uh, check out our social media pages and sites, uh, The Light Revealed, uh, Consciously62, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, great stuff going on over there. Uh, and also you can find us on the Intentional Jew Podcasting Network, intentionaljew.com. Okay, so for those of you who have not heard the first part of this series is what does that mean series. We're focusing in on principles and concepts from the 12 steps. And one of the most shocking things about the second step of the 12 steps is that it seems to call us crazy. It says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, that's nice. God might come into our lives, our higher power, and help us. But uh, restore us to sanity, that sounds a little mean. Are you saying I'm insane? So the question that emerges often is, what is it talking about? What is, what is the insanity that we are being restored from? Now, on, on a more positive note, it implies at least that we were sane at some point. So that's nice. But it kind of begs the question, what, is, what exactly is it talking about? Isn't it negative, kind of judgmental to call people suffering from addiction insane? You know, insane usually refers to someone with a deep level of emotional dysfunction, people who are psychotic. Is that, is that what it's talking about? Is that what it's telling us? No, obviously it's not. So what is it saying? While we're trying to par- kind of parse all that out, we can also ask another question. There's a chazal, um, the rabbis say, that a person never sins unless they are overcome by a spirit of insanity. So what are they talking about? You're saying anybody that sins, like at all, is crazy, is insane? So obviously it's not talking about that either, because, you know, we all sin, we all do do some form of sin. So what exactly is it talking about? And what can we learn from that for our lives? And then separately, particularly for any of us who are kind of trying to find a state of bonding between, you know, the pathway of 12-step recovery and the perspective of Judaism, are they somehow connected? And then finally, what does it have to do with perm? Like, seriously? It would seem on face value, like on perm, we're supposed to kind of act insane and people drink and go wild and crazy. So what does all of this have to do with that? So let's start in Judaism. The Svarim the Holy Books, 
This is discussed in detail on many occasions in Tanya, which, you know, everyone here knows I have an affinity for Tanya. So the Tanya discusses what does this mean that a person doesn't sin unless they are overwhelmed by a spirit of insanity. And what he explains is, is that really sin, which is an act taken that is focused on moving towards the world of separation and away from the world of connectedness with God, an act which runs contrary to our the core of our being, which only wants to be connected to God. So therefore, when a person sins, they're, act, they're actually acting entirely against themselves. And what's explained is that the reason why a person falls to sin, the reason why a person acts beneath their own ideals, is because there's a part of themselves which is rooted deeply in their emotional existence, kind of rooted in their hearts, that is very enamored by this world. In the language of the Tanya, that's called the nefesh habahamas, the material soul. Now, this material soul is like it's described the behemoth. It's an animal. It, it reacts and acts instinctually based on what it perceives as the, being necessary for survival or in its own interest and well-being. Now, the nefesh habahamas, the reason why it's different than a regular animal is that it, it actually can act willfully in a way that's not even so good for its will. So not to make it too complicated, but basically there's a part of ourselves that's driven to do what it wants, what feels good in the moment, even if it doesn't meet our ideals. And that part, that drive, that will, you might say, sends messages up to our brains, to our conscious cognitive self saying, wouldn't this be a nice idea? Wouldn't this feel good? And then if we are sufficiently taken by the idea, by the impulse, we'll start to come up with reasons that it makes all the sense in the world to do the thing that we desire to do, but oftentimes we don't actually want to do. Sometimes that means we don't want to on a deep existential level. And sometimes it means literally we don't want to, and yet we feel compelled because the desire is so overwhelming that it appears as if, if we don't do this thing, we might expire. It appears as if there's no chance that we're going to get around it and eventually we will fall. So the insane idea wins out and we fall, we give in, we sin. So when Chazal, when the rabbis say that a person does not sin, unless a spirit of insanity overtakes them, it's not talking about a place of emotional unwellness, the way we oftentimes associate the word insanity. It's not talking about psychosis. It's talking about a phenomenon of distorted thinking, a manifestation of a misappropriation of our desire for our will. We start to think that the thing that we lust for is actually something we want, even though we know deep down inside we don't. And this is why people sin, because we become wrapped up in these distorted thoughts, driven by lusts, driven by impulse, driven by desire, and driven by the lie that we cannot survive without this, that we cannot fight, that we will not make it through. The books of ancient wisdom explain that this is the thing that stands in our way of spiritual progress, us losing ourselves to these distorted thinking patterns, losing sight of what's really important, losing sight of what really matters, and losing sight, and losing sight of what we really hold dear. So that the solution is not to stop ourselves from misbehaving as much as it is to realign our thoughts towards the truth, towards what we truly want, towards the inner desire of our true selves. So now the question we can ask is, well, is that what they're talking about in 12-step recovery? 
when they say that we'll be restored to sanity, are they talking about an emotional unwellness? Because no doubt many alcoholics and addicts are emotionally unwell. Or perhaps they're talking about something else. Perhaps they're talking about a state of thinking. Let's see. What we find when we look in the literature of recovery, and even if we just rely upon the two, two of the most prominent texts of recovery, that of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and that of the basic text of Narcotics Anonymous. In the, in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the fundamental text of the 12 Steps, where the 12 Steps was first introduced, when it's talking about the problem of alcoholism, it breaks down the alcohol, it breaks down alcoholism into having two primary parts, a part that affects the body and a part that affects the mind. Ultimately, what the 12 steps believes is that those problems, particularly the ones of the mind, are driven by an underlying spiritual problem, and therefore the 12 steps is focused ultimately on solving the spiritual problem that drives the mental problem, which we'll talk about at a later point. Nonetheless, when it breaks down the problem, it breaks it down to two parts, the body, right, the physical dependency and the medical consequences of alcoholic and addicted use, as well as what they describe as an allergy, which is kind of a tendency to abuse things that feel good, to use them again and again, um, to an impulse for more. But when it talks about the mind, what it talks about is a certain twisted thinking. And this is where it starts to use language like insane, which implies is what it's talking about in step two, not to get too lumdish about this, but it talks about things like the insane idea went out. The insane idea being that the alcoholic comes to convince themselves that they could drink successfully. Then it talked about twisted thinking on a different page. It talks about the way in which the, the alcoholic can become so skewed in their perspective, so lost in their resentments and frustration and anger, so that something like picking up a drink becomes a viable, reasonable response when somebody they love hurts them. So that's in the big book of AA. That seems to sound very similar to what Chazal were describing. In NA, they quote a very, very well-known line. That insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Now, oftentimes this, this statement is ascribed to none other than Albert Einstein. And there's some, there's controversy about whether that's true, but whether Einstein said it or not, it's definitely a well-quoted statement. Insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. And that also sounds a lot like what Chazal were talking about. The Nefesh Bahamas distorts our thinking, saying, chasing this materialism, chasing this momentary pleasure is going to feel good this time. It's going to work this time. The guilt is going to be gone. We're going to be able to manage it. It's not going to take us away from God. It's not going to disconnect us from a conscious contact with our Creator. And yet, again and again, our sins do that. So that when Chazal say that no one sins, unless they're overcome by a spirit of insanity. They're actually describing the very thing that the people who developed the 12-step programs found themselves. That people act beneath and outside of their own well-being because they're overcome by some spirit of insanity, by a twisted way of thinking, by a distortion of thoughts. Now, there's one more thing we have to confirm because what the 12-step state is that higher power, a power greater than ourselves, will restore us to sanity. So the 12 steps is proposing that the only way out of this state of insanity is to reach out for help from a higher source of power, that we need God to overcome this spirit of insanity. And the only question now is, is that what Judaism believes? Is that consistent with our tradition? And the answer is, of course, of course it is. 
It's all consistent. Not to get too lost in it, but the reason why these things are always consistent is because the people that developed and have worked the 12 steps over the last eight decades did so focusing on what works. And if we believe that our Torah is true, then it wouldn't be very surprising that people that focused on developing a pathway of recovery, focused on what works, found some stuff that fits totally in line with Torah. That's not shocking. In fact, it kind of makes sense. So what does the Torah say? What happens when a person's overcome by a spirit of insanity? Well, he kind of describes two parts. If there's at least a sane idea in your mind, we reach out to God and we rely upon Him to be the deciding voice between the insane idea and the sane idea. The other thing he says, though, is that even when a person's at that lowest space where the sane idea is missing, it is there that we also reach out to God, the highest source of power, to save us from that horrible place. While it's true, the Tanya says, in the moment, we rely upon the principle of mayach shalat al-halev, that our minds have power over our hearts to control our actions on a moment-to-moment level. And that's no different than, let's say, the principle in recovery of one day at a time. A person can stay sober for a day, for a week, for a month, but sustained long-term recovery requires a restoration to sanity, a freedom from those persistent and often persuasive voices driving the person to do that which they know that they shouldn't. And so the practices of the 12 steps and the practices of chasidus really are very much in agreement here. It's exactly the same. So when it says that we're insane, it doesn't mean we're insane, but rather that as humans we are subject to really twisted ideas, and that through vigilance, and through focus, and through mindfulness tools and practices, we can banish out those distorted ideas and welcome God into our lives to free us from their grips. Now the question is, what does it have to do with Purim? And here's where it gets really cool. You see, everything that exists in the side of unholiness exists in the side of holiness. So if the spirit of impurity that lives at the core of our Nefesh Bahamas, driving it to take actions which separate us from God, can rely upon a certain mindless insanity to get us to do what we know is wrong, then that same mindless insanity, that Adaloyada, must exist in the side of holiness as well. This is the great message of Purim. This is why the mitzvah to drink is to be drunk until a person does not know the difference between blessing Mordechai and cursing Haman. Because there's a space, there's a mindless, almost insane space in the spiritual realm where God loves and chooses the Jewish people. Not because he should, and not even because he could, but because he just does. He just chose us. This is the symbolism the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains in the name of the Alter Rebbe of Chabad of why Purim is called Purim to commemorate the lots that Haman threw to figure out when he was going to kill the Jewish people. He explains that through the lens of Pnimias HaTorah, of Hasidus, the reason why Haman threw lots to overcome the Jewish people was because he was trying to connect with, so to speak, that space of mindless insanity. That place where it doesn't matter between blessing Mordechai and cursing Haman. That space where both Haman and Mordechai are just doing their job. Whether Mordechai is a tzaddik and Haman is a rasha, whether Mordechai is a righteous one and Haman is the wicked one, if they are carrying out the will of God, aren't they the same? Now, obviously, that's distorted, but there's a certain truth to that. 
There's a certain reality to that. So Haman sought to defeat the Jewish people in that space. He understood, the Rebbe explains, he could not defeat his foe Mordechai at face value because Mordechai represented the Nefesh Elokis in its highest state. Mordechai represented the Jewish people, Klal Yisrael, who correspond to the Shechina, the Divine Presence itself. So he could never come at us in a straightforward manner. It was only through a lottery, through trying to access luck, through the possibility of chance that he might be able to overcome and defeat the Jewish people. And the beauty of Purim is that even in that space, in that mindless, insane space of Adelo Yada, even there, God chooses us. Even in that space, when we were living outside of the land of Israel, when we no longer had our kingdom, we no longer had a base on Mikdash, divine presence, prophecy was no longer there. That even in that space, God chooses us, and we, the Jewish people, choose Him. The point here is that oftentimes we find ourselves in a place of insanity, and we hope to ascend out of that insanity to a place of sane and straight thinking. But in that place of sane and straight thinking, we aspire to ascend to an even higher space of mindless love, giving, and commitment to dedicate ourselves to God and to helping His kids for free and for fun because we get to. And that's a little bit what Perm's about. And that's a little bit what the second step is about. The promise, the hope of a restoration to sanity just long enough so that we can abandon ourselves completely and turn our will and our lives over to our Creator. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaron. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky, and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, You can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions, so please feel free to email us or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.